Amen, church family. You know, it's interesting, I've, I've, you know, Pastor Tom and I, we, we had the opportunity a couple years ago, or actually just over a year ago, we were in Liberia, and that's when COVID was kind of like, we're like, what is this COVID thing all about, you know? But whether we go to Liberia, whether we go to any other part of the world, um, if you were to take like a, a survey, for example, of different religions around the world and different kind of cultural aspects, you would observe very quickly that there are all kinds of ways that people seek to worship their God or their gods. All you have to do is kind of, you don't have to go far even out of the United States, but especially when you go into an international context, you see there are many ways that people worship their God or their gods depending upon the customs. And uh, having gone on a number of uh, mission trips myself, uh, I've got to observe some of those differences firsthand. But I think what's interesting about the, the ways in which people worship their God or worship their gods is that their worship reveals what they think about their God. Their worship reveals what they think about their God or their gods. It reveals what they think about what their gods are like. For example, when I was in, uh, I spent a, uh, a summer in a couple of summers, actually, but one some particular summer I was in Asia, and I got to go into the kind of t- t- Tibetan area, and so I got to kind of get a kind of a, a a quick introductory to Tibetan Buddhism. And I know we've been partnered with the Waters and stuff, and they've been over in the Kham area on the other side of the Himalayas, and I came in from the other side of the Himalayas through China, and uh, and we see like Tibetan Buddhism is the predominant religion. It's a sect of Hinduism, and it's it just that's what people believe. You grow up and that is the religion that is given to you. And what was interesting for me as I'm making observations was, was that the, the gods, which there are thousands and millions of them, but the gods that the Tibetan Buddhists believe are actually, for the most part, angry. For example, I just took this picture when I was there, and if you notice, th- these are all their different idols, and um, you'll notice that Underneath the gods, there are people. Usually they're standing on them. And I, I, this was one of the more tame pictures that I decided to, to show to you because when you look at them, it's, it's kind of abhorrent. It's kind of surprising, maybe even shocking because you're just like, your gods are not very approachable. They're not very, uh, uh, they don't look very lovable. But yet that is a, a, a glimpse of how they envision, how they view their gods. Their gods are angry with them, and therefore, because their gods are angry with them, their worship or their practices follow accordingly. And so they believe they must appease the gods. They have to, in a sense, diffuse the angry, the anger in the gods. And so what they have to do is they have to lift up a lot of prayers. It's all about merit. It's all about what I do to make myself acceptable. And if I do enough, then perhaps they will bless me. So for example, in Tibet, we see that they'll walk around. This was a holy site, kind of deep in the heart of the calm area. And they walk around their holy sites clockwise, and every lap is, in a sense, credit on their behalf. And you'll notice that these guys, they're swinging these things called prayer wheels, and inside of them, they're stuffed with a lot of holy prayers, and they spin those clockwise. Again, clockwise is important because if you go the other way, you're actually bringing upon curse in your life. That's what it's believed. And so they're swinging those clockwise as they walk clockwise, and they'll do this for two hours every day their entire life. 
all with the purpose of if we do enough, then the gods will be less angry with me and perhaps I will receive some sort of blessing. We also see that they'll imprint prayers on prayer rocks. And so that's another, again, a a continual prayer that's being lifted up into the sky to give them credit or favor. And at every high places in the Himalayas, you'll see prayer flags everywhere. And again, those prayer flags are all about the prayers going up to the sky, uh, appeasing the anger of the gods, and therefore, as a result, Result, if they do enough, they will be uh, satisfied. I didn't point a pi- put a picture up there, but um, I'll just give verbal explanation to it. When we were driving along the road, we saw some uh, some young guys. They were, they were making their way to the holy city of Lhasa. Lhasa is kind of the, the capital for uh, all Tibetan Buddhists. And that's where the, the Dalai Lama, you know, hangs out and different others. And so um, they are making their way there. And sometimes they will travel for a thousand miles from wherever their hometown is to the holy city of Lhasa. But they don't just take a walk to Lhasa. No, every single stride is a stride of prostration. In other words, they literally go down. I'm just going to model it for you here. They literally go down and they drop on their knees and they walk completely flat like this. And they come back up. And they come up, and then they take a stride, and they do it again. And they'll do that for a thousand miles. Again, the more difficult the journey and the longer the journey, the more merit they receive. That is what is believed. And then the gods will be happy. And then perhaps, just perhaps, they will be blessed. And nothing bad or nothing difficult or less difficult things will happen in their life. The fact is, our worship of God can reveal what we think about God. And this is true of even unchristendom as well. Our worship reveals our understanding of who God is. That's why even Tozer, and we've said this over and again, but it's worth reflecting on and chewing on more fully every day in our lives. Tozer says this, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And the reason for that is because what we think about God determines how we respond to God. It determines how we worship God. It determines the manner in which uh, that we serve God with our lives. But the danger that we are all susceptible to is to think of God in a way that is unbiblical. We are all in danger or can fall easily victim to thinking of God in a way that, he's, that is unbiblical or to imagine him to be like something he actually isn't, which in turn will alter our worship accordingly. J.I. Packer, looking at Jenny Dahlman here because she just got one of the books. <laughs> J.I. Packer says this. He says, no statement that starts with, this is what I think about God should ever be trusted. Think about that. No statement that starts with, this is what I think about God, should ever be trusted. And the reason is because an imagined God will always be quite imaginary, <clears throat> imaginary and unreal. 
The fact is, our thoughts of God will always fall short to some degree because He is beyond our imagination. He exceeds our ability to to fathom His greatness. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't think about God. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not to say that we shouldn't envision uh, who God is and, and to reflect upon His greatness as it's revealed in His Word, but it does mean that we need to be careful. We need to be careful and we need to be humble in our thoughts of God because we can easily, in a sense, begin to fashion a God that doesn't actually exist. We can easily think of God in a way that is either false or just plain unbiblical altogether. And that's why it's so important, it's so crucially important that our thoughts of God be informed by what Scripture says. It's critical that our thoughts of God and what we think of God are actually given to us by God through His Scripture. And that's why we make much of Scripture. We, we don't just look at it as a, just a resource among many, but we look at it as a, a divinely inspired resource. It's a Scripture where God reveals Himself to us. It's, it's through Scripture that God discloses who He is and what He is like so that you and I and all people might worship Him rightly. I appreciate Hannah actually sharing Philippians chapter 2 because one day, Scripture teaches, one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So one day, people will pay homage. People will worship God whether in this life or not. One day people will acknowledge and realize, even if they don't in this life, that Jesus is Lord. So the point I'm getting at is this. God cares about how we worship Him. God, it matters to God that our worship of Him is consistent with who He really is. In fact, when you read kind of all through, through Exodus, all the way through Deuteronomy, which is called the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we see that God doesn't just go give some general instructions, but He gives instructions down to the minutest detail. In other words, God isn't saying this. He's not saying, hey, this is who I am, therefore worship me however you want. Uh, do whatever you want. Do what's comfortable to you. Do what, uh, what seems appropriate to you. Kind of a, a to each their own approach. That's not what God says to his people. No, he says, I want you to worship me like this. By implication, meaning worship is objective. Worship is objectively given not, and not subjectively driven. And therefore, it's humbly practiced. And this is really the message that we see God is kind of addressing in the second command that he gives his people in Exodus chapter 20. Recall that we, last week we started our, our series through the Ten Commandments out of Exodus chapter 20. And again, the context of which God giving these rules for life for his people was this, that, that God had, had already delivered his people from the land of Egypt, right? They were in slavery for over 400 years. And then he finally raises up a leader. He finally raises up his servant Moses and uses him to lead his people out in a very miraculous way to a land that he promised long ago. 
And along the way, we see the Israelites, they arrive at this place called Mount Sinai. And and God summons Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai to, to be with him and to talk with him and to give him instruction. And at the bottom, the people of Israel are just hanging out. And they're waiting for their leader, Moses, to come down. And when Moses does come down the first time, he comes down with the Ten Commandments or Ten Rules to Live By. And last week, we spent time unpacking the first commandment, which the first commandment is really the the foundational commandment to all the other commands. It's why it's first. And it says, you shall have no other gods before me. God says, I'm the one who delivered you out of Egypt. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who's going to lead you to a land that I promised to your father Abraham. I am your God. Therefore, you should have no other God before me. And now this morning we will unpack the second command, which addresses how we worship God. One, one commentator said it this way, while the first commandment warns against worshiping, God, the, worshiping the wrong God, the second commandment warns against worshiping God the wrong way. And so we read here in Exodus chapter 20, starting in, I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 6. You can read along, you can listen along with me, but I'm going to be reading the first and second commandment, starting in Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these things, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, the implicit therefore, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This morning we're going to unpack the second command in in, in four ways, just to give you kind of an idea of where we're going here. First, we're going to talk about what this command means. So we want to have a better understanding of what is God saying in this command. And then secondly, why is this command important, not only for Israel, but for you and for us, for me today? And then thirdly, we'll look at how do we actually obey or follow this command. And then fourthly, we'll conclude as we did with the first commandment, how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this second command. But before we jump into that, I just want to bring a kind of a point of clarification because in this passage we see that it kind of, there's sometimes we have these passages that jump out to us going like, what in the world does that mean? That seems to be kind of like, doesn't seem to be consistent with what the point is in this second command. And, and God says something like this. He says, I'm going to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I mean, really, it's like, what does God mean when he says that? I mean, this verse, that, those two verses, verses five and six, seem to indicate that, that, that basically multiple generations will bear the consequences for great-granddad's poor choices, but if great-granddad made good choices, then my family is set for the next 20,000 years. 
Is that what God is teaching? Is that, is that what God is actually trying to convey in his word? Well, on one hand, yes. Yes, in this sense, that yes, we are, in effect, influenced by the decisions of our great, 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 daddy called Adam and Grandma Eve. All of us are under the curse of sin and born into sin because of their decisions. So on one hand, yes, we, do, we are affected, we are influenced, we do bear the consequences of great, 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 great daddy's decisions long ago. But on the other hand, we can take this in a, in a direction or to a, a degree that is beyond the scope of God's teaching here. And I believe that the best way to understand why that this, it's probably not what we think it might be, meaning like if great-granddad made bad choices, I'm just kind of looking at the short end of the straw apparently. That's not what God is teaching. And I think you see other passages that kind of complement or help contrast what God's heart really is. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 18, you can read the entire chapter, but I'm going to just kind of get the summation of Ezekiel 18. The question is posed, does the child pay for the parent's sins? And God responds, no. For if the child does, does what is right, is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness, says the prophet Ezekiel. So what we see that God is communicating in the second commandment here is that really this judgment will fall on the children if they walk in the same manner as their sinful parents. So the reason why judgment extends to the third and fourth generation is because the kids are following in suit with the sinful patterns or actions of their parents. In other words, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree concept. What mommy and daddy did, little Tommy does too. Sorry if your name is Tom right now. If the children follow in the same sinful patterns, which is why he says, who, which they show their hate for God, then they will also share in the same judgment as their parents. But we also see a promise in this passage. Those who show their love for God by turning away from their parents' sin and obeying God's commands then they will not experience the judgment of their parents, but instead they will be blessed. Now, of course, we can all acknowledge the fact that when mommy and daddy or great-granddad and great-grandmother make decisions, it can still have an effect. It can negatively affect our lives. Sometimes we just can't, those are unavoidable. But, When it comes to our responsibility, every generation makes their own choice. Every person has an opportunity. And just because mom and dad may have been living a life of rampant wickedness, every decision can make a choice. I think our our brother, Pastor Corey, is case in point. I'm not throwing your family under the bus there, brother. I'm just saying you've told me about your dad and stepdad. But that's not true of Corey. Because Corey has made a choice to follow Jesus. And so just because dad and stepdad have made choices to live life on their terms, 
and therefore reap the consequences, that does not mean that is Pastor Corey's story. That does not mean that that's his journey. Because Corey has said yes to Jesus and has surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. And honestly, I believe he's blessed by Jesus. And we are blessed by his presence, are we not? Amen. Anyways, that's not really what I was going to preach on, but I wanted to bring some clarity to that part of the passage. But let's get to the main emphasis of command number two. God says this to his people, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. What in the world is God saying in this command? I think especially for us Westerners, right, we can go to other parts of the world, even like Tibet today, and you can go to India, and these ideas of carved images probably have a more prominent understanding in their minds, but for us, we're kind of like, well, we're not, that's not really our reality. That may not be our experience. It's not really in our face in the same way, but what God is saying in a very broad sense in this command is that he is calling out the, the rank aroma of self-serving worship. He's calling out the the rank aroma of self-serving worship, worshiping God on our terms rather than on his terms. That's kind of the broad stroke of this command. But on a more specific sense, this command is really forbidding any man-made images that would be used for spiritual purposes. It's viewing any man-made objects as, as necessary to, to bring us closer to God or, or making us more acceptable to God. Again, as the, the pictures I showed up there, we have, the, we have the prayer rocks and the prayer flags and we got the, the, the prayer wheels and, all, and, and all, all, you also see there's prayer beads. Everything is prayer, 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 this, just enough to appease the gods. But maybe we don't struggle with that. Maybe we have other things like we, we are the crucifix, around, you know, Catholics will wear the crucifix around their, their their neck or we'll wear the cross around their neck or maybe you'll get a, a tattoo of a religious symbol uh, or of something you know um, maybe you'll have uh, whatever it may be there's all kinds of things that we can adopt in a sense to almost act as a lucky rabbit's foot to kind of go like well if by having this somehow this might actually um, uh, bring a greater uh, opportunity or probability of blessing. You know, for example, we, we can have crosses all over your home. We have a cross in our, we have multiple crosses in our home, actually. And the thinking can be like, by having the cross in our home, it in a sense protects us. But is that really true? I just read an article, not by, with intent of preparation for my sermon, but I just happened to stumble upon an article where it was a church in Israel, and there's a church in Israel that is believed to be built over where, the, where Jesus was buried. And people come from all over the place to kind of swarm and to place their hands on the place where Jesus was supposedly buried and the, the intent or the motivation behind that is if I do this, if I put my hands on this place, if I, if I go to a kind of a, a holier place, then I will receive greater blessing. In other words, archaeology or, or, uh, or, or, or even our latitude and longitude can make a difference of God's blessing or not. 
Or, or we can also say this. We can say, uh, maybe if I, if I have a certain garment and some people around the world will say, man, I, this is maybe wood that is from the, the cross of Jesus or the, the part of the leather that was on Jesus' feet. All those things could be like, if I have this, God will bless me more. It, it, I, it, I'll have a greater acceptance before God. But yet this is the kind of religious practice and these are the kinds of objects that God is actually warning against. God is saying that none of those things have any power to merit his grace or blessing in your life. It doesn't mean that God is against religious symbols. It's not what he's saying. It doesn't mean that God is against artifacts and paintings and, and, and pictures and all these things that have aesthetic kind of qualities to them. But God is against any object that we might regard with some sort of supernatural capability. To illustrate this, I think you can actually look at uh, Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus 32, we see that chapters later, Moses is still on Mount Sinai. He's been gone for a very long time. The people are becoming extremely impatient. And they're wondering, where in the world did our leader go? We're sitting here in the, the basin camp at, at Mount Sinai going nowhere. Where's the promised land? Moses has gone. Maybe he's dead. We don't know. He went up into this cloud of smoke and thunder and lightning to be in the presence of God. Our leader actually might be dead, and we don't even know about it. And so they become increasingly impatient, and they ask the, the, their priest, Aaron, they say, Aaron, you need to make for us a God. And so we see that Aaron, uh, he makes a God. He, he, he makes a collection of gold from their earrings and the rings and everything else. And he makes a mold and he out pops this golden calf. And he tells this people, that the people of Israel, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. What's interesting about this historical event, and I think it's important that we understand, is that Israel was not seeking to serve or worship a different God. They were seeking to worship their God, but to do so their way. They are, they're seeking to worship Yahweh on their terms. They weren't looking for Baals and all the other false pagan gods of other nations. They were seeking to worship God their way, on their terms. We see that Israel was also vulnerable in other ways too. I mean, they viewed the Ark of the Covenant almost as a, a, as a lucky rabbit's foot, right? A good luck charm. Basically, we're guaranteed to win as long as we have the, the, the Ark of the Covenant with us. I can't help but wonder if that's why, why God had it allowed it to be stolen into Philistine territory for a long time. And yes, we know the presence of God. He chose to put his presence in there until there was a temple, a more permanent establish, uh, establishment. But even the temple was viewed in regards beyond its intent. Yes, God chose to have his presence in the temple, but we see that ultimately that they made much, so much of the temple that it was less about God and it was more about the way they practiced and worshiped God than God himself. So what is this command saying? This command is saying no object, no artifact, even our images of God 
will fall short. They don't have the supernatural capability of making yourself acceptable to God. And as Christians who live in the day and age which we live now, we know that blessing only comes by God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now why is this command important for us? Why does God prohibit the use of images of in, and anything else to attempt to represent Him? I think there's a couple of reasons, one of which is we don't really need images of God because we are that image. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating the world, it said, God says, let, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. He goes on to say, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. In other words, we are divinely created. Uh, we are divinely created to represent God. And of course, we know that sin has distorted all that. We know sin has corrupted all that. We know that, that everything is imperfect uh, that, uh, from the design or creation that God originally intended. But in reality, we, what we don't need is more images of God that, in a sense, that seek to represent God. That's not what we need more of. We need more people to faithfully represent the God they were created or designed after. What we need is we need believers in Jesus Christ. We need God-fearers that have surrendered to the lordship of God to, to represent God faithfully as image bearers. But I believe a second reason why this matters is that God actually chose not to reveal himself through our visual sense. Isn't that interesting? That the way in which God chose to, to reveal himself to the world, and especially in this context, to his people Israel, was not in a visual sense. Yes, we, they saw visually his presence, but they were not able to see God. And even though Moses was able to see God's backside, but he says, no one can see my face and live, but we see that God, want, if God, want, what we really should walk away with is, if God wanted us to worship him by seeing, then he would have revealed himself through our sense of seeing. But he didn't. He revealed himself in word. He revealed himself in words. It's why what Paul will say later, much later in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's no coincidence that John ref refers to Jesus as the word in John 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. We see that God raised up mediators like Moses and Aaron and many prophets to represent God to the people by their words. God raised up and inspired over 40 authors to write the scriptures with words. Our hope and our joy and our salvation are experienced by God's promises, which are words to us. The point is this. Our, our worship is, is not merely an experience or, or a feeling or, or a visual display. It can include those things, but that's not really the point. No, worship, as one person said, is wordy. Worship is wordy. 
Uh, it is the truth of God's word that sets you free. We see that faith, that we see that f- we, we walk by faith and not by sight. What do we have faith in? Faith in God's promises and that his promises are true. So God wants us to believe him and to follow him, not necessarily by what we see, but by what he said. He wants us to follow him by what he has promised with his words. The next question is somewhat big then. How do we actually do that? If God cares much about the worship of himself that we think rightly about God and respond appropriately in our worship of God and also identifying ways in which are not appropriate, how do we actually obey this command? Well, I think one simple, and I've already kind of alluded to this, but one way we we obey this command is that we don't attribute images or icons or any other man-made religious products with the ability of offering divine grace or spiritual blessing. It's okay to have those things. It's okay to have crosses on your wall. It's okay to have pictures even of Jesus if you want. Nobody looks, knows what he looks like, but you can have your picture of Jesus if you want. But to think of them as a way of, if I have them, I am more blessed than I would if in, in its absence is to move beyond what that man-made object is intended to do. You see, it's tempting to regard, as I said, certain aspects or certain objects as a means to bring good luck or blessing, but we see that, as James says, all blessing comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Or like the church I mentioned that that sits over the, the, the supposed tomb of Jesus in Israel, the thinking is the closer I can get to this tomb, the closer I can get with God, but that simply is not true because we have the Spirit of Christ. You can't get any closer. Even Paul says we are now that temple. When Jesus died and when he rose again, that curtain was torn away. This new covenant inaugurated, it initiated a new covenant, a new way to relate with God. We don't need that any longer. The same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that resides in tabernacles with us. I think a second reason how we can follow this is adopt only those images of God that are described and prescribed in Scripture. You know, one of the things we like to do is like we, we like to use our imagination and imagine what God is like or, or imagine a God that is acting in a certain way and, and we can oftentimes even imagine God uh, being or acting in a way that kind of suits our desires perhaps. But the potential danger in letting our imaginations dictate what God is like is that it can lead us down paths that are potentially unbiblical. And so then we can, unfortunately, or without even knowing it, adopt a mental image of God that isn't, in fact, even true. And in turn, alter our worship. That's why Packer I keep pointing to Jen here because she got one of the books that I've been consulting. 
Packer says this, we must reign in our disordered imaginations and reverently accept that God is as he says he is. For it is only as rose-colored fantasy is abandoned and realism takes its place that true worship, worship that is in truth, can begin. And so it's important that you and I Imagine God in a way that is influenced by what Scripture says, not by what we want. But thirdly and quickly, we need to understand that our worship services must be structured around what we need, not necessarily what we want. You know, even as pastors and elders, as we think about what our service is going to look like on the weekend, as we, as we consider and, and, and just and grapple with and put everything on the table as far as different ministries that, that we like for you to participate in or that we encourage you to participate in, we ask questions like this. How does this help us fulfill our mission? How, how does this help us pursue our vision? How, how is Christ exalted in this? How does this foster spiritual growth in our lives? These are the questions that we are asking in everything that we are attempting to do and pursue. Notice we're not asking, what do people want? It's tempting to ask that question. But just because you want something doesn't mean it's good for you doesn't mean that we don't desire to listen to you. But just because we want something doesn't make it helpful. Notice we're not asking what is most comfortable for everybody. Or we're not asking how can we attract the most people. The fact is our worship of God has always been countercultural. The worship of God has always been countercultural. I don't know who said it first, but... It's something that I've been mulling over even this past week. But it says, what we win people with, we will win people to. What we win people with, we will win people to. And therefore, our desire is not to win people with uh, entertainment or even the latest trend in churches. Our desire is to win people with the gospel of Jesus by preaching Jesus through the word of God. That's what we desire to win people with. Yes, there are many things that we could do. There are many things we could adopt. There are many things that we could entertain or or apply, and and they're not always necessarily wrong, but in a sense, what, what unites us together as a family, as a church, as a unified brother, sister's body of Christ, what unites us is when we are centered on Jesus Christ. When you look at the early church, They didn't go on to all different directions. No, they centered the reason why they met, what brought them together, what unified them together was that they centered on the gospel of Jesus. They did not depart from that. Yes, some people did not want it and they would leave. But others would. So we obey the second command by seeking to worship God on his term, not ours. By understanding that blessing and freedom do not come from man-made objects, but by God himself. But here's the important part of this all. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the second command. Jesus is the fulfillment of the second command. 
Remember what we learned last week. Jesus, Jesus fulfilled these commands and, and, and he did this on our behalf. The good news for us is that because we stand guilty, you know, here's the thing. God says, here's the 10 rules for life. Here's the 10 commands, commandments I want you to live by. And by the way, as the Israelites were supposed to conclude when it was all said and done, you can't do it. The expectation is perfect adherence to the law and you will all fall short. You, will all, you are all guilty. Which makes you kind of, brings you kind of to this conundrum, right? God gives us rules to live by. We're all guilty by them. And because we're of our guilt, we deserve death. What hope is that? <laughs> Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what allows us, what enables us, what empowers us to fulfill this command is not dependent upon our performance. It's not dependent upon our ability. It is fully dependent upon the ability of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of this second command. Most specifically, as Edmund Clowney says, God did not want his people trying to make an image of him because his purpose was to show himself to his people in the person of Christ. The fulfillment of the second command is the birth of Jesus Christ. So Christ, so as we worship Christ, we worship God made flesh. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. He's the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father because I and the Father are one. How do we worship God? How do we know what God is like? How, do, how can we know him more clear, clearly? How can we know him more fully? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Again, if you were to ask the question, how can I know God? Open your Bible. Look at the Gospels and you'll see him on full display. And from there, as you read in Luke 24, when you get a glimpse of who Jesus is, then you realize, oh, from Genesis to Revelation, it always has been and will always be about Jesus. So we obey this command. We follow this command. We are obedient to this command when we make Jesus our ultimate pursuit and when we abide with him. The beauty of this all is that Left to ourselves, we could not worship God appropriately. Left to ourselves, we could not worship God as he desires to be worshipped. But as we, what we see is that when Jesus came on the scene, when Jesus came and he walked this earth and he, he lived a perfect life and he modeled for us the kind of life we are called to live and he died and he was buried and he rose again, we see that Jesus made it possible not only to worship God properly but to relate to him in a way that honors him, exalts him, and glorifies him. You see, it is through Jesus that we are reconciled with God. It is through Jesus that we have relationship with God. It is Jesus who paid our eternal debt so that we would instead live for eternity. So we make much of Jesus. We worship Jesus. 
Wow, Father, even as we are just reminded what great love we have received from you. God, you have loved us so much that you sent your son to die so that we could live. And you didn't send your son to say, here's how to live, but I'm going to make it all possible. I'm going to make you righteous. I'm going to make you innocent. I'm going to make you free so that you can follow me, so that you can obey me. Father, help us to understand, help us to realize that when we surrender, when we give you our life, we don't lose our life, we gain it. We actually gain our life. The life you have created us to experience, the life you've created us to live, a life that is, a, that is aligned with our original design to walk with you, to be filled with your presence, to glorify you in all things, to not live for ourselves. Jesus, you emptied yourself so that we would have life. Father, may we empty ourselves so that we can foster life in others. May we follow your example. May we glorify you in word and in deed, all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.